I'm Lou Eisen, boxing historian and writer, and today we have a special treat. We have one of the top boxing writers on the planet for the last over 20 years, uh, Mr. William Detloff. And uh, William has written a magnificent new book, Matthew Saad Muhammad, uh, uh, Boxing's Miracle Man. And it's available on Amazon. I'm going to ask Bill in a couple of seconds where else it's available. But this is a wonderful book. If you're my vintage, and even if you're not my vintage, this is a must read because there was no one like Matthew Saad Muhammad in boxing. He had tremendous charisma. He could take tremendous shots. Uh, he had an incredible life, abandoned at the age of four, and left to roam the streets of Philadelphia, the mean streets of Philadelphia, and still rose to become the best light heavyweight uh, on the planet. And I just wanted to say a couple things about Bill so, um, uh, so people know that he was the senior editor at Ring Magazine for over 15 years. And since 2017, he's been the editor-in-chief of the best boxing magazine on the planet, Ringside Seat. He's also written uh, many articles for HBO, ESPN, and hundreds of other places. And he has uh, uh, other books out, uh, in particular, the Ezra Charles book and the former World Heavyweight Champion, which is also a magnificent book. And we're very pleased and privileged to have Mr. William Detloff here today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Lou. I appreciate it. What a wonderful intro that was. I appreciate it very much. Oh, my pleasure. You deserve it. Um, we're glad to have you. The first question I wanted to ask you is, because there was some, that was a golden era of light heavyweights, Marvin sure. Johnson, Mike Ross, Rossman, Yaki Lopez, Richie Cates, Galindez. Why do a book on Saad Muhammad? Is it because of your personal connection with him? Uh, well, I liked him a lot uh, when he was fighting, of course, because who didn't, right? Everybody. Right. We all loved him. But really, uh, uh, as much as his uh, in-the-ring heroics, it was really his personal story uh, that attracted me to writing uh, the book on him. Uh, and frankly, I've always been amazed that uh, not only hadn't anybody done a book on him before, that it wasn't a... I'm sorry. It could be his family. I'm sorry. Uh, that uh, not, nobody had written a book on him before, but also that it wasn't a Hollywood movie by this time. Right. Everybody knows right. Uh, or everybody at the time knew his story and uh, that uh, all this time had gone by. Forty years had gone by and and nobody had expanded it and researched it and uh, made it a motion picture, at least, uh, which is amazing to me. Um, and that's really the genesis of uh, why I wanted to write about him. Uh, number one, because of his personal story, which was just amazing to me, and also because of his, his enduring heroics. Uh, what was interesting also uh, to me is that even I found out while researching the book that even while he was champion, even though he was a world champion, he was shopping around his personal story to authors and Hollywood studios and nobody bit on it at all. Uh, That's again, is, yeah, it is. And I have a theory as to why uh, that why is. That? I think um, it's possible that it was because America wasn't, or somebody decided at least that America wasn't really ready for uh another Muslim hero, right? Right. We had Muhammad Ali, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, and he became a hero grudgingly, right? Oh, and it took a long time. And people forget that now, right? He how hated he was, how despised he was. Yeah, he was a prime in the 60s. Absolutely, absolutely. Largely because of his conversion to Islam, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I have no proof of this. Nobody said it to me and it's a conjecture, but I think that people were recognized the American culture and said, uh, maybe if he was Matt Franklin still, we might be interested. And even more so, maybe if he was a white guy, Matt right. Franklin, Absolutely. Right, that might've helped also. But I think the, the main impediment was that nobody was gonna uh, 
spent a lot of money and a lot of effort to promote the story of an uh, American uh, Muslim man at that time in the 1980s. Yeah, that's, you know, that's sad, but it's not surprising. I mean, there's a story about the promoter Mike Jacobs when asked why they won't give Sugar Ray Robinson a title shot at the welterweight title back then. And he just said, there's too many N-words already in the sport. We don't want to drive the fans away. And our thinking hasn't changed a lot. I mean, it's different today, obviously, but what you're saying with, with uh, Saad Muhammad, I, you know, that's just sad because it was, it's a story. Your book should be a movie and it, it's a, it's a triumphant story of someone yeah, who overcame an, a background that no one else could overcome and rise to be the best on earth at what he did. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm in line with the thought that he overcame a lot to become what he was. Uh, but I'm also of the mind that his circumstances contributed to him becoming what he was. Right. You know what I'm saying? We all fight, boxers all fight for different reasons, right? And um, mm. there's a lot that goes into what makes a fighter successful, but a, a really hard, uh, arduous uh, childhood and a longing to belong and to succeed it's, it accounts for a lot, right? Mm -hmm. As to whether he or she will succeed. And to come from what he came from, I imagine he had that in, in spades. Right. And that never left him even after he lost the title. Right. Well, right. He still refused to be beat in his mind. Right. Exactly right. Now, one question I wanted to ask you is why is is it these circumstances are this is this the reason this is a teeny bit off topic? Why Philadelphia since the 1870s has produced so many magnificent fighters. You know, going back to Luke Tendler before him, Owen Ziegler in the 1890s. Yeah. Benny Briscoe, uh, Cyclone Hart, Boogaloo Watts. Yeah. You know, uh, just fantastic world champions, Buster Drayton, yeah. hundreds of them. What is it about Phil? I mean, they've produced almost as many as New York or or Mexico or any other place and places combined. Why? Why Philadelphia specifically? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, uh, Lou. I think uh, part of it is explained by uh, uh, the history of the city that I present in the book, mm -hmm. right, following the Great Migration and right. the concentration uh, of uh, poor uh, Black people that uh, were really packed in sardine, like sardines in Philadelphia and in ghettos. And uh, we all know that ghettos produce fighters because there's not a lot of opportunity for guys who become great, right? Right. Uh, but there was a confluence of uh, things that occurred at that time. And uh, I think I touch on it in the book when I list all the boxing gyms that were there. Uh, there's a there's a there's just a couple of pages where I talk about uh, or write about um, all the fight gyms uh, that were available to guys in those times and they were just everywhere in philadelphia everywhere in philadelphia and they weren't um i don't want to be one of those in in my days or the old days kind of guys but uh they weren't fitness gyms right <laughs> they weren't fitness gyms with a cage in them or uh, an octagon or something or uh, a heavy bag or two these are real fight gyms located in real poor neighborhoods and there were just dozens of them just dozens of them in philadelphia and right over the river in new jersey and uh, you could throw a rock in any direction and hit a, a real fight gym. And there were so many poor kids who needed stuff to do. And they just, they all seemed to happen uh, uh, to the, at these gyms around the same time, this confluence of uh, the prevalence of gyms and all these great young athletes uh, in that period in, in the early seventies. 
really um, a miracle of nature that uh, so many great boxers came out at that time. Well, you so, showed that. I mean, you it was so great the way you showed all those gyms and all those great fighters and, and past fighters uh, who became great trainers, Georgie Benton, and mm -hmm. so many of them. Angelo Dundee came from Philadelphia that went yep. back to help these kids. Angelo used to yep. say to me, there's tough, there's super tough, and there's Philadelphia tough. There you go. And that's good. He, and he said that in those gym, he said many of the fights, I mean, you know this better than anyone on the planet, but the fights that took place in the gym were better than actual fights you paid money for to see anywhere else in the world. Sure, sure. I would give anything to see uh, the sparring matches between uh, Matthew and uh, Michael Spinks. Unbelievable. Michael Spinks and, and Dwight Muhammad Kawi or Dwight Braxton at the time. Can you imagine the, the sparring matches that took place then? Sparring match between Joe Frazier and Jimmy Young. Just, yeah. I, I, I'd give anything to see those sparring matches. Sure. And you know, Meldrick Taylor came from there, and mm -hmm. just so many great. And I love the fact I, I was struck by the fact when you mentioned that his his uh, family originally came up from Aiken, mm -hmm. North Carolina, which is the home of Paul the Punisher Williams. That's right. Yeah. And um, just the the racism, the endemic racism that they had to endure uh just to get a menial job there and then to get paid what you're promised and then in that city to you know to fight which leads me to my next question i mean blinky palermo of the mob was from there were some of matthew's fights that he lost in philadelphia where he actually won do you think those were mob influence fights or were they or were they just bad decisions yeah i don't think well, the, the couple of fights that he lost early on, I don't think there were, let me say this, the mob was every, everywhere in Philadelphia at the time and, and in the fight game. And there's a criminal element in boxing then and there's a criminal element now. There always has been. We just can't separate them. We can talk yeah. a little more about that later. I found some interesting things in the book that I uh, that I hadn't known before. But uh, his early loss to uh, Wayne McGee was certainly not... Uh, it was certainly not mob influenced. I talked to uh, Russell Peltz about that fight, and he just got beat by a guy whose style he couldn't handle, right? And he drew with him later, which is evidence further that he just couldn't handle that particular fighter and that particular right. uh, style. Uh, I don't think any of it was uh, mob influenced, but certainly um, that was all around at the time. Right. You know, it's, it. And uh, speaking, I spoke with. Um, uh, a Canadian, a former Canadian lightweight or junior welterweight, Nikki Ferlano. Nikki's okay, yeah, yeah. And Nikki fought Aaron Pryor, and mm -hmm. the joke was people would come up to Nikki and say, "Well, I saw that fight and you won." And he said, "Well, if you think if you think I beat Aaron Pryor, then you weren't at the fight. There's no way I won that fight." <laughs> yeah. But he said I would watch fights with Nikki, and he would say what you just said. It comes down to styles. You can have a great yeah. guy, and someone else just has a style. Yeah, it him. happens all the time. Yeah, it and it's just all the time. a bad matchup. You know, so yeah. the other one, the one thing I want to ask you too is Saad, Saad Muhammad's, Saad Muhammad's background. I mean, he was much watched TV, you know, Absolutely. remember people would say, Hey, I can't want to go out and play baseball. I can't Saad Muhammad's fighting today. And is, is his background, I know it shaped him uh, personally, but did it shape his ring DNA too? Because he started out like Gotti as a technical boxer and then mm -hmm. morphed into more of a slugger when he could have won a lot of his fights just with his jab and straight right hand. Yeah, it was the uh, Eddie Mustafa Muhammad fight or Eddie Gregory at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, he he boxed uh, 
and moved uh, against Eddie Mustafa Muhammad and lost a close decision. And uh, he, he decided at that point, I'm not going to buy, be a boxer anymore uh, against the wishes of my uh, trainer, Nick Belfiore, and uh, my manager. I'm going to be a slugger. And he, uh, that's what he became uh, for the rest of his career. And importantly, just like happened with Gaddy, uh, he became much more popular as a result. He became must-see TV. Right. And I suppose uh, Gaddy is a good corollary for Matt in that he was just, again, like you just said, must-see TV as Gaddy was. Um, but this is, and what I'm about to say is not that denigrate or Torodal, he was, who was a wonderful fighter, but he was not him. They were corollary, but Matt was a much better fighter and a championship right. caliber fighter. And, and, and uh, for a period, the best light heavyweight in the world when the light heavyweight division was the best it has ever been. That's, in my opinion, there's never been a uh, class of light heavyweights that was better and more willing to fight one another repeatedly than the light heavyweight division uh, that we got in the uh, early 1980s. Yeah, absolutely. That goes back a couple hundred years. There's never been. Sure. Absolutely. And I think the only class that comes close to it is the class that uh, as a Charles fought in as a right. light heavyweight. Right. They were all fighting. Charles, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, but otherwise, I don't think another heavyweight class uh, since then or before then touches the, the early 1980s light heavyweight division. No, I agree. I think you could put them in any era, and they would still yep. be the best. I agree. And I each agree. fight was a competitive. Each fight was a fantastic fight, and you didn't walk away from each fight like you do some fights today and go, well, that, you know, Loma Haney was a good fight. Some people were disappointed. Others weren't. But regardless of the outcome of those light heavyweight fights, unless – you were in love with Saad Muhammad like I was, you, you know, they were all magnificent fights. You got you more than I you agree. agree completely. And the guys like Yankee Lopez and Richie Cates would have been easily world champions, not only today, right. but in other eras as well. Right. Well, did Matthew, he fought a lot. Yeah. And fighters that slug, are, you know, Angela say they put asses in the seats and that's what it comes down to. Sure. You know, so many guys, as you know, say i should be getting this kind of money and i should be getting that kind of money but people aren't paying to see you so you don't get it knockout artists get it but right do you think that matthew in the time he held the title did he defend his title too often did he did he not take enough breaks in between you know in other words did he wear himself down yeah that many defenses i don't he, think so i think yeah. uh because fighters and you know this as a historian fighters uh prior to the 1980s fought very frequently Yes. Right. Sugar Robinson and those guys in the 40s and 50s would fight three times a month, yeah. you know, for, for 10 or 15 years. Right. right. Uh, and uh, I think there's an advantage to that. Right. As I'm sure you do, because the more you do anything, the better you get at it. Mm -hmm. And when you fight that frequently, you're always in the ring. You don't ever get out of shape. Right. right. Uh, and so when, I think in the 70s and it's gotten uh, progressively uh more applicable now is because guys don't fight as often. So they have to have these long training camps and blah, blah, just stay in the ring, just stay in the ring. You'll never get out of shape. But anyway, back to your question. Uh, I don't think the problem, I don't think what shortened his career, because he was essentially done by the age of 28, right? right? I don't think what shortened his career was uh, the frequency with which he fought, but the, the number of uh, all out wars he had, which is kind of what you're getting to also. So many back and forth slugfests that, uh, there's a quote later in the book that he, uh, from, I think, Wesley Muzan that he never should have been in that many wars. Like he could have been really uh, special, more special than he was if he hadn't been in the, so many wars that he was in. Why did he, didn't he, didn't he inherently understand that he had the technical, well, he had the skill off his jab. He was mm -hmm. really a great technical boxer. Like you say, 
who could have beat these guys just on, on boxing skill and technique alone. But was it because of losing to McGee and to then Eddie Gregory? Muhammad, right. Yeah, that he thought, I'm not going to leave it in their hands anymore. Yeah, well, I think that's part of it. But also, uh, you know, fighters fight for more than just money and prestige and titles. Right. They fight because uh, what, it, what the crowds give them and what their fans give them, right? And you said it before that, the puncher has put asses in seats. Sure, he could have won a lot more fights by boxing and moving, uh, but would he have become the legend, the living legend that he was if he had made that kind of career? Probably not. No, we're talking about him now because of the style that he fought in and how exciting he was and uh, how many people fell in love with him on free afternoon television watching him go to war with these guys and uh, walking that tightrope, as I write in the book, over and over again. Yeah. And you're thinking, this guy can't come back from this this time. And he did. And it was all about seeing if he could come back uh, one more time. Just like Gotti. Again, Gotti uh, is so fondly remembered now. He wouldn't be if he was just if he stayed a stick-and-move guy or a right. boxer-puncher type. And and I think the same thing with Saad Muhammad. We're I talking about him now because of the memories he created when he was fighting on those afternoon uh, fights. You could right. see the, yeah, you could see the Turban Gotti when he knocked out Wilson Rodriguez when he was losing. Yep. And it was almost like something clicked. Like, yep. if I can keep doing this, right. you know, I, I mean, exactly I'm right. that spider. Yeah. Now, he wouldn't have gotten that HBO contract if he hadn't, right? That's right. Now, uh, your book is available. We're not ending. I'm just want to make sure that sure. frequently during the show, sure. your book is available on Amazon, right? It is available on Amazon. It, uh, and Barnes and Noble and all the uh, book websites. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also uh, available directly from the publisher, uh, right. McFarlandBooks.com. Publisher, right? Right, and also from me. Uh, I can send okay. out uh, signed books for anybody who wants them. If they want to send me uh, a request on Twitter or Facebook or uh, at the Ringside Seat, uh, I can uh, respond there and I can uh, get a signed book out to anybody who wants one. It's interesting. You're one of the most accessible, well-known great boxing writers, whereas back in the day, Jimmy Cannon, Dan Parker, all these guys weren't really accessible to the public, but it's sort of a new world in which someone could go on the internet and actually speak to you, one of, if not the top guy in the sport who writes about it. And, and well, Thank you for putting me in that league, but it's, it's embarrassing to me that you do because those guys were just guys. And it's just a different world now. Like Jimmy Cannon was a you know, such a well-known sports writer, right? Just a legend in journalism, and yeah, it's a much different world now. But it just is. But yeah, I'm, I'm open to anybody who wants to talk or uh, or buy a book or just talk boxing or anything. Is um, now getting back to your great books. Was there anyone who saw Muhammad's life? Because you mentioned about the Rolls Royce that he bought, and so many athletes do this, boxers do this. You know, spend the money on the piano at the Hall of Fame. Several. When Lennox Lewis was getting inducted, he gave a speech and Andre Berto was beside him. Hmm. And he's, he mentioned, he said, and I guess Lennox is big enough, he could mention it. He said, uh, Andre Berto showed me his $30,000 watch, diamond watch. And I just wanted to say to you, Andre, that may be one of the, if not the most stupid thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Good for him. It keeps depreciating. And if you hurt your eye, you think you're invincible and yep. you can't continue, that watch is worthless to you. You, right. should, you should get a bank person that you know and yep. start investing it in GICs, which you don't know what they are, and annuities, so you don't have to come back when your career is over. Was there anyone to, that could curb Matthew Franklin or Matt Saad Muhammad's fiscal 
this or or was it just yeah or was it just I, oh, it's, I, i'm poor and now i have a chance i'm going to take it well there are, uh, there are a few things uh a few caveats to mention i think not only uh was there nobody to protect him it, it was the opposite everybody was happy to steal from him and enjoy the ride as it always is mm -hmm. as it always is with these fighters and uh you mentioned i wrote a book about as a charles and his situation was the same way you know, it, the times were different and, and the fighters weren't at the bling so much, right? There were no $30,000 watches, but they they spend because they just figure it, it's never going to end. Like they'll just fight again and get a million dollar paycheck or another $800,000 paycheck. Right. And they never see the end coming and it ends and it's, that's it. And there's nothing after that. And then they've, they haven't planned for that at all, which I get. I completely understand that. And plus, they're coming from very poor backgrounds mostly. And their family and friends are still in those areas and so they're they're sharing some of that wealth uh, to try to help the people that are important to them but it's a story is always the same almost always the same 99 percent of fighters who uh, go from rags to riches end up uh, in rags again at the end and um matt's personality was such that he was uh, fairly naive in these areas and just you know like every like i said uh uh like I read some, several times in the book, he just thinks the party's never going to end and you to keep spending and people keep taking. And and uh, there's plenty of blame to go around uh, for him uh, ending up financially the way he did. Uh, right. In his personal life and his career, uh, there were people around him who not only weren't protecting him, but who were doing the opposite. And uh, by the same token, I'm not sure he would have listened anyway to somebody trying to protect him, right? It's just the way it is. You know, fighters say, hey, I... I bled all over the ring for this money. You're not going to tell me I can't take my 20 grand out of the bank and spend it on this girl or that or that right. car or whatever, right? So it's very difficult, but uh, it's universal. It happens all the time, right? Yeah, it's universal in all sports. Rocket Ismail used to play football here in Canada. Yeah. Um, who went down to the States, ended up broke. And people are wondering, how do you end up broke? There was a Sports Illustrated, <coughs> excuse me, article about boxers, baseball players, football players, yep. and end up broke because of these blood suckers, family, friends that, yep. and finally someone in Dallas, apparently some lawyer started a thing where yep. he said to the athlete, you don't have to pay me, but when anyone wants money, you send it to me. And then he sends them how much do you want specifically? What is each penny for? And what's right. your plan to repay it? But that doesn't exist in boxing. Is there any way to stop that from continuing to happen? No. no, no, because here's the other part. The guys will show up and say that's their job. And before you know it, uh, two years go by and that guy's gone with no forwarding address or number and he's got all your money. Right. And right. They have to <laughs> yeah. So uh, they don't boxers. The boxers are, aren't businessmen. No. Right. And there are a lot of times they're just trusting in, in that sense. And they just figure, okay, this person will do me right. But it's. It's very difficult. I, you know, it frustrates me too when I see fighters that are broke at the end. A guy like Evander Holyfield who made three hundred million dollars over his career it just drives me crazy. Yeah, that he could blow that much money, but I can see it being very difficult. These guys are not most of the time are not terribly educated. They're right. trusting, and they say, "Okay, this guy's going to do the right thing." I think of the case of Fernando Vargas, right, or. or uh, uh, Peter Manfredi, guys who like thought they were investing in real estate and investing in safe uh, avenues, and the people they entrusted to invest their money just took off with the money, you know, and it, that's terrible. And so, and so you can say they should do this and they should do that, but it's it's got to be very difficult for these guys, and it's not it's frustrating from from our end to see them do this, 
but guys are just out there to to rip them off left and right and um and in, in matthew's case it was on it was in his personal life again possibly and also his uh professional uh management uh depending on who one asks but i think there's plenty of blame to go around right i know from the you know from the Carpanchi dempsey fight up until the 60s it was the people that ripped them off were mostly the mob right that too. Like, sure sure like williams ended up with nothing exactly after right. making all that money and so many of them did yep. um you know what i was wondering about matthew is uh I was comparing him to Jake LaMotta. I asked LaMotta at, at Canistota once, you know, how I was mentioning how he'd lie on the ropes and take shots and then he'd come mm -hmm. off, play possum and then bounce off the ropes and that. And I said, why do you take so many shots? And he said, because I'm a bad person. I felt I deserved it. Is there an element of that you think of Matthew getting caught in the ropes or was that, is that just me overthinking? Is, is it, was, it was just the way the fight turned out. I think it's possible that he, um, and I'm, I, I couldn't get in his head, obviously, but I think it's in line with someone who, whose really deepest thoughts might be, I'm not worth anything, so why don't I just, I'll just take these shots. And that wouldn't be uncommon, I think, for a person to feel after he'd been abandoned the way he had been uh, when he was a kid and spent time again in orphanages and some foster homes. But um, I think that's possible. He never expressed that. I'm not sure he he would express it even if he knew it, right? Right. It's possible that he that he felt that way and didn't know it, uh, but he never expressed it. But it's conjecture. But I think it's it's possible. Because whenever he was asked you know, how he was doing in your book, he was always saying, "I'm fine, great, everything's okay." But it seemed like he didn't completely. He never got close with the family that abandoned him. And you can understand why. Yeah, he didn't. And that was a particularly interesting part of the book uh, to write. Uh, as I noted in there in a, in a footnote or a chapter note somewhere that uh, his birth family uh, wasn't interested in participating uh, in in the, the making of the book. They didn't want to really speak to me, uh, which I guess is understandable, right? If the If the story is as it has been told and portrayed, uh, then they don't come off well, right? Right. So I understand, in fact, that the brief conversation I had with one of his sisters, uh, she said to me, uh, when I told her what I was doing, she said, what gives you the right? Who gave you permission to write this? And I said, I don't need permission. Right. But I, I wanted them to participate um, so they could maybe do something to erase or, or change some of the negative connotation that goes along with knowing his story, right? Right, And I tried to do that myself a little bit when I described uh, in the book that the father was just gone and, and they were just left at their devices. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. when people found out how it went down years later, everybody had a judgment about, oh, how could you do that? But where was the father, right? Where was his father? Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted them to participate uh, not only because, of, of course, I wanted more information for the book, more authentic information, uh, but also because I wanted the chance to be, I wanted the, um, them to have the chance to tell it from their side. But they weren't interested. So uh, I forgot uh, what your question was. I'm sorry. No. I'm well, sorry. I that's all right. It, one of the most poignant parts of your book is when he meets his brother who abandoned him. Oh, that's him, right. Right, and, right. And he said, it's either, it was either me or you. 
Right. Exactly right. And uh, he did what he had to do. Uh, and again, it's it's interesting also. This this part uh, kind of touched me also uh, was when tears. Matthew was quoted. Pardon? I was in tears reading that. Were you? Yeah. Uh, well, that's good. That's good. Uh, every writer likes to hear that as uh, his story that he's telling is affecting people in some way. But um, I, th I found interesting that uh, Matthew was quoted as saying, uh, it worked out to his benefit, that he was that it, he was fortunate that it worked out that way for him because the people in his family, in his birth family, weren't doing very well, right? Rodney had, just to quote Matthew, just a little bit of a job and wasn't doing well. And I don't, I don't know what his uh, birth sisters were doing at the time. Uh, but uh, to get back to your, and now I recall your original question, they never got close uh, because a lot of times it doesn't happen that way, right? Things just don't, Too much we like to think that in those situations when somebody, the long lost child shows up and there's a big hug and, you know, sometimes it happens that way, sometimes it doesn't. And complicating things, of course, was Matthew had all this money and fame and, uh, whether there's uh, a, a, a long lost relative uh, a piece of it or not, when one person gets famous and rich, everybody shows up with their hands out. Right. And, and my information was that there was some of that going on with his birth family. So uh, it made things difficult. But several people, as I wrote in the book, uh, told me that he kind of, after all that um, wishing to find his family, his biological family, in the end, he kind of wished that he never had. Yeah. That must have been really unbelievably sad to find them and then think they just want money from you. Yeah, I imagine it was. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that his wife, the wife that was from Alaska, I believe, um, yes. when they broke up uh, after he had no money, but then they opened up uh, businesses, they ended up with a lot of money. You sort of inferred that they, you know, I mean, it's happened so many times before. I have friends in stand-up who lost money to ex-wives. I mean, wives that literally took it when they weren't looking. Did, did she take Matthew's money without his permission and give it to her family? I don't know that. I, I can't say that that was the case. Right. I, what I did in this section you're referring to, uh, Lou, is um, note that around the same time that he was declaring bankruptcy, her parents were... Uh, breaking ground on an office building that was worth a million dollars. Uh, and it was no secret at the time that um, she had very expensive tastes. Right. Okay. So I'll say, and those were, those are indisputable facts. Right. So I don't, I don't have proof that she was taking his money or stealing his money or giving it to her parents or any of that. But those two things that I just mentioned are, are indisputable that she had expensive tastes and a, a member of, uh, his camp told me as I write in the book that it wasn't uncommon for them to go on a shopping spree in New York and spend 10,000. And it wasn't all Matthew spending 10,000. Right. Uh, so, and those things happen. Those things happen. And also there's something else that goes along with that too. Uh, you know, when, a, when an athlete, a professional athlete who's making lots of money uh, gets married or gets in a close relationship with a woman, uh, she thinks the manager is stealing, right? The manager thinks, yeah, the manager thinks she's stealing. And so they're like this. And that was the case here. Bilal Muhammad, uh, Matthew's business manager, didn't trust her and she didn't trust him. Uh, and so that made things difficult as well. But in the middle is Matthew making this money with literally his blood, right? 
and and watching it go here and there and here and there and then you know one day later he's broken homeless and saying what the hell happened right yeah i mean same thing with um robin Givens and mike tyson and i know sure. yeah angela said that uh, with muhammad uh with regards to his money taken by the nation of islam and his wives and infidelities he said i just said to him at the beginning i train you in the gym it ends there yeah I'll, I'll do everything else you want me to do i'll try to protect you from the mob but i'm not getting involved in your money i'm not getting yeah. involved in all these affairs there's, there's you can't blame them who wants those headaches right no you're right and interestingly i didn't uh i don't think i included this in in the book uh but you noticed that at, i'm sure you noted uh lou given your given your relationship with angelo that on at least two occasions, uh, Bilal tried to get Angelo to train Matthew Sadma. I saw that, yeah, that was great. Right, and uh, I think the quote that was told to me by Tony Green, who uh, was close to Angelo, right, and he was his original manager, uh, was he didn't want those headaches. He had enough of the circus with Muhammad Ali, right, and that was that was the that was the word that Tony used uh, when speaking with me, and that he he was just, he wasn't into that circus anymore. I, yeah, I know several, that makes sense. There, there was, I'm not gonna mention, but there was a Canadian fighter up here who who was doing really well, uh, uh, I believe a cruiserweight, went down to visit Angelo with his wife and his wife made all these demands. And I uh, said, thank you, but no thank you. Yeah. And, and he said to me, once the wife gets involved, he said, I just said to her, how many world champions have you trained? Right. And her, she said, well, how come he doesn't get a signing bonus of a million? You know, <laughs> gold medal at the Olympics. I'm not Bob Arum. There you go. And and after he just, I mean, he turned down as many fighters as he took. Um, yeah, I'm sure. So, in all of Matthew's fights, you mentioned in the book how he would come in five pounds overweight, three pounds. Yeah. Was that a lack of discipline or focus, or is that I think for a, yeah, I think for a long time, especially when he was young, he just figured I can make this up in two seconds. You know, when you're 22, you can take off three pounds in an hour. Right. You know, it doesn't matter when you're 25, you're going to maybe even, you know, 26, 27. Uh, but it finally caught up to him in the the first white Muhammad Kawi fight when he came in seven pounds. Overweight. But yeah, he came in. It wasn't an, it wasn't unusual as I uh, outlined in the book that for him to come in a couple pounds overweight and uh, he was a training fanatic. He was always running and always in the gym. And that's why another reason, by the way, uh, why he take that kind of punishment because he was always in great shape. But I think he just wasn't as careful with his weight as he wanted to be. But he knew he could get away with it uh, until he couldn't uh, again, which which is what happened in in the first Cowie fight. Right. Now, one of the great things when you're mentioning his him as a youngster, teenager, I guess, and he's getting to all these street fights, gang fights. Um, did the discipline of boxing curb his desire after that to get into the gang fights, or was that an element of him that was still alive in him? That he expressed in the ring, or was that? I don't, something? You know, I don't think so. I, I think he got there. He had like an epiphany when he was in prison at eighteen right. or seventeen, and it just said, I, "This is not. I got to stop this. I have to find something else to do." And he decided, "I'm always fighting anyway." And that seed had been planted uh, by a teacher or two uh, over the uh, some years earlier. Since you're always fighting, why don't you get paid for it? And uh, that seed had been planted some years earlier. And when he was in uh, prison the last time, he just said, I got to snap out of this and do something else. And I think when he left prison that time, he'd already decided that those days are over for him. And, and he went to uh, 
he started uh, working out at the gym shortly thereafter with the intention of uh, just being a, a fighter full time. Uh, but he worked a couple of jobs, of course, uh, during right. that period. And and I can't say that he was uh, entirely uh, rehabilitated at that point. There's some evidence here and there that even while he was fighting as an amateur, he was doing some, there were some illegal things, an assault or a robbery here or there. Uh, but again, I think he said he had decided uh, during his last prison stay that uh, that he was going to box and that would be his ticket out. Sort of like Bernard Hopkins in that. Yeah, of course. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Because someone used, to, I think someone, I might have read it in, in Nike Row, but someone said to Bernard Hopkins, why don't you try, you know, improvising or trying this? And he said, the last time I did that, I ended up in jail for 10 years. Yeah, exactly right. It's it's funny that you bring up Bernard and we're talking about boxers in prison because I'll take this opportunity, Lou, to plug uh, a new issue of Ringside Seat Mag, if you don't mind. Which is uh, a great issue. It's got all the best writers on the planet in it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the features I can't wait to get uh, out there is written by uh, Hall of Famer uh, Bernard Fernandez. Philadelphia, right. Yes. His great first great. yeah, his first piece uh, for our magazine. Glad to have Bernard aboard. And uh, he wrote a piece at my request about uh, the demise of uh, prison boxing programs. And... Um, and again, we're talking about Matthew Saad Muhammad, of course, who was in prison, and Dwight Muhammad Kawi, Tyson. Who, uh, uh, Tyson. Uh, but these guys, some guys in, in those days benefited, and Hopkins is one of them, of course, a great example of one who benefited from prison boxing program. James Scott is kind of a different story, though. He's in the era right. we're talking about. But Sonny Liston, of course, learned to box while he was in prison. And uh, largely, those those prison boxing programs don't exist anymore. So there's a feature uh, by the wonderful Bernard Fernandez about that that quotes um, Bernard Hopkins uh, pretty liberally uh, in the upcoming issue of Ringside Seat Mag that uh, I'm eager to get out there. When is it available? Uh, probably in about two to three weeks, uh, okay. a little later than normal, but two to three weeks now it'll be out there and we'll, we'll be posting it everywhere. Well, I love it. I mean, it's the best boxing magazine on the planet. So thank you, I appreciate that. People want to read about what's going on and the history of the sport, but what's going on today, you gotta get it. Now, it's interesting you mentioned um, Liston. This mm -hmm. is off topic a bit, but uh, when okay. I, I was able to speak with, he wasn't very talkative as, you know, Chris Dundee. He didn't, you know, I was a young kid and I don't have time for young kids, but sure. I mentioned Liston and he showed, he had a poster of Liston from the 30s, I think it was from the late 30s, Sailor Boy Sonny Liston. Sailor Boy Sonny Liston. And he said that he showed me a poster. It, it, I, I don't know. It, I don't know if it was listed or not. I couldn't tell from looking at it. But he said that he promoted him in the late '30s. So he said that would have made him late '40s, maybe early '50s when he found Ali. But I, I, I said, wow. I don't know because you see pictures of Liston in the late '50s. He still looks very young. Yeah. You know, so I, I have a hard time believing. I'm not going to tell him he's lying, but I mean. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> that might be a bit of a stretch. I don't know. Yeah, the late 30s. It just, yeah. It's just fascinating. But the yeah. point you make about the, the boxing program in prison, in a way, it's showing that you, it's a way for these prisoners. I don't have to tell you this, but it's a way for these prisoners to channel the rage, your energy into doing, doing something positive with their life. And. Foreman went into the job court, and that saved his life. Yeah, exactly right, because he started boxing there. What's interesting to me about what you just said, uh, Lou, about uh, that saved his life, is a lot of these, a lot of the things, 
here's here's what it looks like in my experience happens so much of the time like in uh like prisoners uh will learn uh how to be an electrician right, right yeah. in the job corps or prison or how to do carpentry or something and then they're released and they go back into the same environment they left and those jobs don't exist right that's what happened with foreman right, right. and and with matthew somehow i think he studied uh electrician work or something but they go on into that same uh where they came from and those jobs don't exist so then what are they going to do right and that accounts for a high rate of recidivism but the point is if they learn to box while they're in there they can do that anywhere in fact when they go back to their to their hometowns that's an option at least it was still in the 70s i don't know how much it is now with the, the way that gyms are disappearing right. but uh i'm not saying that uh, that uh Things like the Job Corps or or, or things like uh, uh, job training programs shouldn't exist for uh, people in that situation. Uh, but certainly, a boxing uh, wouldn't hurt either. You know, in some prisons in the U.S., uh, they're not even allowed to lift weights anymore because crazy politicians say, "Oh, they come out of uh, prison all beefed up and stronger, and now making better criminals." That's just the kind of stupid thinking that exists. In, yeah, that's it. Around, uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. That's also a, a, a lot of racism in that. Right, exactly. And that comment. Right. You know, the interesting thing, Foreman said something once um, about Liston, and it applies to a lot of these fighters that we're discussing, I think. Foreman said that up to the age of 15 or 16, 17, he couldn't read. Mm -hmm. He couldn't read or write. And when my mom died, I was five. So my father had a nervous breakdown. So my sister and I moved all over. And I couldn't read until I was about nine years old, until an aunt took me and it was a school teacher. And Foreman said not being able to read, when he went to job court and he started reading at the kindergarten level and then went up and up and up, he said being able to read was like going from a dark room into a light room. And he said, Liston never learned how to read. That's a very good point. Yeah. And he said so many of these guys, he said he remembers, and I think you know the story, where he's driving somewhere in California and yeah. Foreman says, Foreman's driving, where's where's the club? Where's the gym? He said, left. So Foreman turns left and Liston smacks him and says, no, the other left, yeah. meaning right. And he said, none of these guys could read. They lived in a dark world. Right. And they had no other option other than to fight. Right. Right. And what you just described, it occurs to me that that's good for boxing, right? But not good for life. Right. <laughs> because those kind of men make great fighters. But for a terrible society and and uh, a terrible life, uh, and that's that's absolutely true. Interestingly, as a Charles also didn't learn to uh, read until much later in life because he came up, he grew up in a town where there was no really no school. Right. And in fact, I just it's funny that we're talking about this because I just posted on the Ringside Suite account on Twitter uh, that he was still in high school the first time he beat Charlie Burley. Wow, great! Job. And I got all kinds of pushback saying he was 21 years old. How could he be in 21? Well, he started school late because there was no real school where he grew up. So he right. was, technically, the tweet was correct. But he didn't read it. He didn't start reading until much later when he got to when he got to uh, Cincinnati. So a lot of these guys, uh, you're absolutely right. They live in a dark place, and uh, coming from a dark place is good for boxing, right? But right. Uh, not for good for society or for people, but fortunately for boxing, uh, the world is full of dark places like that, right? Right. I mean, I guess. Yeah. When you look at the questions always asked, why do so many of these guys in the 50s, 60s, and even later up to now, a lot of them go into crime, organized crime. 
Well, they weren't disposable skills beating the hell out of someone. So right. where else can you do that? Sure. Exactly you, right. You know, other exactly than right. in boxing. Yep, I agree. What do you think, uh, I, before we came on air, I was watching the second fight with Lopez in the eighth round. Ah. And, um, I mean, they would have stopped it today. But Absolutely just, right. And the fact that he came back, and my, my heart bleeds for Iaki Lopez, who deserved to be world champion. Yep. But just couldn't get there. Richie Cates, who beat Galindez, and then they incredibly stop it for half an hour. Right, right. Have to screw him. But right. what was... In, in your expert opinion, what was Saad Muhammad's shining moment? The best fight? Was it the first fight with Marvin Johnson? You know what? I was thinking about this. It's a good question. I think his he, he was at his absolute best, and I enjoyed watching him most against Richie Cates in the Richie Cates fight. Uh, because Richie Cates was very skilled. Okay, He's a cool. very skilled boxer puncher. Yeah. And Matt on that night was matching him skill for skill, right? Move for move, which showed what a brilliant boxer puncher he could be. Eddie ended up overpowering him over tough over and over out toughing him, I should say, right? right? Because he knocked Matthew down and Matthew got up. And so he used his innate toughness and courage and heart and all the stuff we love about him to win. But up to that point, he was matching him skill for skill. The first Marvin Johnson fight, which is just an unbelievable fight. Um, and uh, which Nigel Collins uh, observed was the only fight he ever watched that he thought where we thought both guys might die, right? right? Which okay. is the best quote in the book, I think. And one of the best quotes ever. Yeah, yeah, it really is, and it's accurate too because they were just the way they were hitting each other was unbelievable. In that, that's my second choice, and it's second because um, he just out toughed Marvin Johnson, right? Marvin Johnson, people don't. Uh, recognize i think today what a badass marvin johnson was oh, he knocked galindez across the ring he did a bad yeah. somersault with that because it's right hand yeah marvin johnson was something else and you don't yeah. get a real appreciation of it until you watch his fights with matthew because the shots he was hitting matthew with would have knocked 99 percent of the rest of the population out and he was he was yeah. a hell of a fighter he was a real badass um but the reason that's my second favorite uh, uh Matthew Saab Muhammad fight is because again he just outmanned him, out toughed him, um, and he was just tougher than Marvin Johnson knew how to deal with, right? Because what he did would have gotten rid of anybody else, but it wouldn't get rid of Matthew Saab Muhammad. Right, and that's great. But I prefer the skill level he showed against Richie Cates in addition to the toughness. But there are so many great fights that the skill he showed in the first Yaki Lopez fight that he essentially outboxed him. You know, we talk about you know he made this transition from boxer puncher to puncher because. Uh, of the Eddie Mustafa Muhammad fight, there were still fights after that where he boxed on occasion. And he was always having this struggle, should I box or should I punch? Uh, he boxed the hell out of Yaki Lopez in that first fight. And it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful performance. And in the second one, he out-toughed him. It just, just, he knew that there was nothing Yaki Lopez could do to hurt him. So he let him shoot his whole load and then just took him out, you know? But one of the, one of my, uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book is from Tony Green, Matthew's friend and sparring partner, who said uh, Yaki really put a beating on Matthew in that fight. Matthew won, but Yaki kicked his ass, and, and Tony stayed with uh, Matthew for a week because he was worried about uh, his condition after the Yaki Lopez fight. Did Matthew, you think, fully recover from that, or did that stay with him? Uh, I think it I think it probably stayed with him, but I think all those beatings did. Yeah. You know, I think, again, he was essentially finished by the time he was 28. 
you know so uh but look what but again this is like a, this is a trade-off right you know you might be done by the time you're 28 but look what you look what you gave us up until that point right and that that's why we're still talking about him all this time yeah. later right old as a fighter but but right. yeah that's that's i mean that's the story i mean and that, that's something thomas hauser said about ali if someone said to him here's the deal because they said what chance would he have had exactly you know in the south being african-american barely getting through high school and so someone says to him listen you can be the most famous man on earth and make hundreds right. of millions but you're going to have parkinson's disease right disease or you can be perfectly fine but live in the south and not be famous and you would have chosen obviously to be the most famous man on earth right that's absolutely right and this question about boxing and what it does to people and why fighters do it really fascinates me. The mm -hmm. quote I read that Ali gave was when somebody, when he had Parkinson's, and somebody said, "Do you have any regrets?" And just to, as you just said, Lou, his his answer was, "I don't have any regrets because I saw the world, and if I hadn't boxed, I would have been painting signs uh, in uh, in Kentucky like my father in Louisville, and right. I never, never would have gotten out of Louisville." So while the world looks at Ali or looked at him before he died with pity. With pity and oh, what did what 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 did boxing do to this man? He rolled the dice and come up, came up big. He was a huge winner. Oh, I, do you I, want a very long life or do you want a shorter life? That's absolutely unbelievable. For me, you know what I'm saying? yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up, I, I mean, I got to meet Muhammad several times because my friendship with Angelo. But right. the first time I met him, I was 14, 13. When he brought Jose Napoli to Toronto to fight Clyde Gray for the welterweight title, and the first time I met Muhammad, I was crying because I was yeah. so in awe of him. Right. I, right. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And he just he hugged me and brush your teeth always and stay in school <laughs> and don't do drugs. Yeah, and, yeah. And and next, you know, I I saw him throughout the years at times, and he came to visit with his helpers on the set of Cinderella Man, which I was in, and. Angelo called me to his trailer, and there's Muhammad, and I, I started to cry again. Oh. And you know, I'm in my 40s at the time, and he looked at me and and he said, uh, "Getting any, you know, you getting any pussy?" <laughs> and I, I, my jaw dropped. I looked at yeah. Angelo, and Angelo was laughing, and he, I said, "Muhammad, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm happily married." <laughs> and he said, "I didn't ask you that." <laughs> right. So. Uh, yeah, I could, you know, he, yeah. he he was incredible. With with Matthew, is it fair to say you can take the man out of Philadelphia, but you can't take the Philadelphia out of the man that he, wherever he lived, I mean, he longed to be in Philadelphia? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if he, well, he, he moved to Jenkintown, and, and uh, that was his home. Right. Um, but I didn't. I didn't see evidence that he that he identified uh, a great deal with Philadelphia any more than an average person does with the town in which he or she is born. I don't know. I don't know the answer. But he didn't. It was there was no evidence that I saw that being a Philadelphia person was especially important to him. Well, one thing I found remarkable, and I I don't know why I've always found this remarkable, but it, I was told years ago that it's common. That 99% of the time with boxers, it's not personal. Yeah. It's it's just sure, business. It's business. Sure. And Eddie Eddie Mustafa Muhammad was in his corner. 
and tell yep. them after the fight, you don't need this garbage anymore. And yep. friends of Mike Rossman and Braxton went to visit him when he heard, or yep. why he went to visit him. Yep. How close was he to these guys after? Did he rely on them? Well, I don't think he relied on them because we're all pretty much in the same boat. Right. Uh, but yeah, he and Eddie Mustafa Muhammad, they were great rivals. And, you know, they both looked forward to fighting one another for the payday it would bring them. And it was going to be a unification fight. Uh, and they talked a lot of crap about each other uh, toward building up such a fight. But they were friends. Mm-hmm. And I, my impression was that that was mostly uh, the result of them having uh, both converted around the same time to Islam. Right. Uh, but it may have been more than that. Uh, again, uh, I think it was the. I can't remember now whether it must have been the second Kawi fight when it was Eddie Mustafa Muhammad was at ringside sitting with uh, with Michelle, uh, Matt's wife. So they were friends. They just, but they certainly would have fought one another for uh, the right amount of money and were going to, but right. uh, for uh, the collapse of uh, maps, uh, which I cover in detail in the book. But uh, and uh, my impression, the, the whole Mike Rossman uh, story is interesting to me because of the beef they had, the beef their managers had with each other. And Rossman's story is interesting to me in and of itself because mm-hmm. um, he's a big recluse and he doesn't speak to any press and nobody can speak to him. And uh, it's interesting to me. I'd love to interview but him, but I can't. Uh, but anyway, I think there was genuine animosity between them, or at least on Rossman's part. It didn't seem to exist on, on Matt's part. But certainly they they were building toward a fight also that never happened. And um, my my information was that it was because, uh, again, Rossman's father didn't want to put him his kid in with uh, Matthew because he knew it would go very badly for him. Right. But he put him in with Dwight Braxton and or Dwight Muhammad Kawi, and it went badly for him. So I don't know. It just didn't work out uh, for the uh, for that fight. But again, uh, after their careers were over, they worked together. Uh, in the roofers union yeah. uh which was uh set up by that person in the book who i uh the roofers union representative but um who helped a lot of fighters including including tony green and other guys uh, so they were friends after their careers were over more so than before yeah i found it interesting with rossman because i emailed you i think this was a year or two ago because i remember when he beat glinda's and mm-hmm. I, I wanted just to speak to him just to say thank you or, or maybe interviewing, and you, you wrote back, doesn't want to speak about boxing, doesn't want to speak about the world, doesn't want to speak to anyone ever at any Yeah, time. he doesn't He doesn't, He doesn't. doesn't do any press. I, I was shocked and had to email uh, my friend Russell Peltz when I saw that uh, he got Rossman to go to some boxing event recently and posted the photos. I said, how'd you, make, how'd you swing this? And uh, he said, I got lucky. I just convinced him. And I asked him if... Uh, he could also try to convince him to talk with us at Ringside Seat Magazine for an interview, and he said, "Not going to happen." He's just a complete recluse who, I, who I'm guessing is just um, so uh, has such bad memories associated with his boxing career and the way he was treated by the press that he doesn't want to talk about it. But really, early on, he was uh, kind of romanticized by the press, right? I wrote in a book that. You know, he was in wife were going to meet uh, Jimmy Carter, and they were talking about him fighting Ali after he won the title from Galindo's. And I remember watching that fight, too, as a kid and saying, wow, this kid, this guy can fight. Um, so there was a time when he was treated uh, very well by the press. I'm sorry. No problem. I wouldn't be so. Out, right? 
I wouldn't be surprised if that was my wife. I'm sorry, hold on. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was stunned when he lost to Glinda's. And I, I said to Angelo, I bet so much on him. I, it can't happen. He said, there's no such thing as a sure thing. That's why they call it gambling, my friend. That's and, right. And he said, Glinda's is a great fighter. He just and he was. And he was tuned in for that, for that rematch, Galindo's was. He was a different guy than he was in the first fight. And uh, I had forgotten about this aspect of it, that there was some uh, doubt that Rossman had actually injured his right hand. Right. I remember that. Right? Yeah. Uh, but watching the video while doing this book, absolutely he did, because you could see the last punch that lands in that round, and I think actually occurs after the bell. He hit awkward. He hit Galindez with it very awkwardly. And it would have been interesting to see how the rest of the fight went. Galindo was certainly pulling away, but it would have been interesting uh, to see how the rest of the fight went because the first one was just great and it was so dramatic because Rossman was not expected to be Galindo's that night. No, and and you look at a guy like you know M Matthew Saad Muhammad, and Saad Muhammad. I mean, he fought with a broken thumb. All fighters fight that way. Sure. You know, fight sure. with with injuries. Yep. You know, it's, it's like when. Um, uh, uh, hey, fought Klitschko and he broke his, his, oh, his toe. Yeah. Yeah. And Angelo said to him, Hey, you know, Muhammad broke his jaw and he still went with, with, uh, Norton. So he so said, yeah. that's part of the business. Most fighters, would you say most fighters don't go into the ring completely healthy? I think that's the case a lot of the time. Uh, because it's, it's a very physical business, right? Right. Even to, even to get in shape, you're sparring, you're having, uh, you know, you, you're doing things that are very physical that result in injuries. So I'm sure it's it's very common for guys to go into fights with nagging injuries. And it's convenient for them uh, when they lose to blame their performance on that nagging injury. Right. Which is, you know, that's just a part of the deal. Part of that also is that there has to be an excuse right. or they could never get in the ring again because they have to believe that when they're at their best, no man can beat them. Or Will changing management and trainers, did that adversely affect Matthew, do you think? You mean when he changed from uh, Belfiore to Sam Solomon and that whole? Yeah. Uh, well, interestingly, I, there are people who believe that that ruined him as a person, that it changed his personality uh, But I, at that time. But I think that just that personality change, if it did occur, it was just normal for uh, someone right. or common, I should say, for someone who had nothing and suddenly has a lot of money. They get an attitude. Right. They think they're better. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that some of that might have been going on. Uh, yeah. I think that. Well, certainly I'll say this. Nick Belfiore was certainly a better trainer than Sam Solomon. Right. And so I think that he lost something there. That was a downgrade going from Nick Belfiore to Sam Solomon. And uh, I think I can't I really can't speak to whether Frank Gelb was a better manager financially for Matt than uh, Bilal Muhammad was, because there are all kinds of issues around that as well. So yeah. I can't say, but certainly he downgraded going for Nick Belfiore, who also trained Jeff Chandler, by the way. Jolton Jeff, right? yeah. So <laughs> that's two world champions out of the same gym in Philadelphia within 10 years. That's remarkable. Two really good fighters. That's a hell of a trainer. Hall of Fame, two Hall of Famers, yeah. Exactly right. And he it's not like he got them when they were finished fighters. He brought them along, right? right. Chandler's so, uh, another guy you can put in any era, and he was still not. Exactly right. Exactly right. So Nick Belfiore doesn't get, uh, I think, 
nearly enough credit as a really great trainer. Nobody talks about him ever, ever. That's never mentioned. That's criminal for somebody who's yeah. skilled and to come, you know, start at the beginning and take them, which is to skill, you know. From. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. How do you think, finally, how do you think Matthew Saad Muhammad should be remembered by the public? Exactly the way he is. As a, a guy who uh, whose special quality that made him uh, stand out was his ability to uh, walk this tightrope time after time after time and get people on the edge of their seats uh, wondering if he could pull it off again. And eventually those guys always, there comes a time when they can't, right? right. And that time came against Cowie the first, the first time. But he, he succeeded at it so many times that uh, by virtue of that, he was a special fighter. Like Gotti, like Gotti. But um, again, and I hate to draw the comparison because Matthew was a full level above Gaddy, right. but the, the way younger fans remember and revere Arturo Gaddy, uh, older fans feel that way about Matthew because he just did it again and again and again. And again, he, pray, he paid the price. Right. That was his choice. Well, guys um, have a short shelf lives, but he right. beat all these other world champions. Sure. I mean, it's incredible the, the, the level of talent. The, the, he beat elite level fighters who were the best in the world, and he just walked through them. He did. And and I keep talking about, um, you know, that his special quality was uh, his toughness and his ability to come back from uh, being damaged. Uh, but that aside, he was a very good boxer when he wanted to be and also a very hard puncher. So even without that, uh, that toughness that we celebrate so much, he would have been a, a great boxer even without that. Right. But it, it, right. Exactly. But it was that that toughness and that courage and that refusal to give in and submit that elevates him uh, to where he sits today, which is, again, it gets back to how we should be remembered. And and that's what he should be remembered for. I've never, I agree. And I've never seen a light heavyweight that had a jab like that. Great jab. And Very good jab. First Kwai yeah. fight, you're thinking if he can just keep this up, he can win right. this fight on his jab. But Kwai was so determined in yeah. getting underneath. Right, right. There was uh, Cowie, I think, at that point in his life would have beaten uh, a lot of guys in the history of light heavyweight division. He was so hungry and he wasn't going to be denied. Right. Now, part of it was that his, as he knew going into it, he knew that Matthew's style was made for him. He knew it. Uh, but he would have beat a lot of guys that night. I'm not, maybe not Michael Spinks. Right, which he uh, did. Because yeah. Michael Spinks, right. Um, but Michael Spinks is an all time great. Right, that's true. But um, he would have beaten a lot of guys that night. Well, Kwai reminds me of Charlie Goldman, you know, the trainer. I mean, the way he fought, where he, the way he trained Marciano to fight, where it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size sure. of the fight in the dog. And he would show Marciano how to get underneath a man's reach. Right. And right. He, it was Goldman who originally, reach means nothing unless you know what you're doing with it. And exactly. why fight the other guy's fight, which is what Saad did with Kwai. No exactly. one intends a game to be beaten at it. But exactly, it just was Kwai's night. It was, and and at that point in his career, also uh, there was nothing uh, Matthew could do that was going to enable him. He had just been through so many wars that he wasn't the same guy. Um, and again, uh, uh, his good friend and sparring partner Tony Green acknowledged it after the Yankee Lopez fight that he just wasn't the same guy. He wasn't the same guy in the gym, and he wasn't the same guy in his fights. Part of it was being worn down so up by all those wars, 
But again, at that time, that stage in his life was he was more businessman than fighter. He's out buying limousines right. and uh, supporting his wife and buying houses and that kind of thing. And he didn't recognize how important it was that he was a fighter until he lost. And then he said, wow. And there went his identity, right, right. <laughs> as a fighter. We and lost all those fights after, which were so sad against these non-entities. Exactly. Exactly right. You know. So I, I just want to say thank you so much. We've taken up enough of your time. Oh, it's I, my pleasure. My I, pleasure. Anytime. And I just want to mention that uh, Matthew Saad Muhammad, Boxing is Miracle Man, is a fantastic book. you got to add it to your boxing library. May I show it? Yes. I, I, I was going to ask that you show it. I love <laughs> that cover. Please there show that. Uh, yes, this is. I, I have to say also, by the way, that the cover was designed by uh, designer uh, extraordinaire Michael Cronenberg, who's also the founder and designer of Ringside Seat magazine. The, and Ringside Seat has been on. Ringside Seats covers, you could actually take off the magazine, though I don't because I don't want to rip it up, but, but you could frame them. Yeah, they're really great. And that's all Michael Cronenberg, the guy's a genius. You should, not you should, but I was thinking you should have the. Consider it again. If, we, if you had T-shirts that you could buy that said ringside seat with the cover. We do. Oh, okay. Great. I'll send here. you a link if you'd like. Yeah. Thank you. Then I, I know what I'm doing this afternoon then. Bill, there I can't you. thank you enough. We've spent the past hour with uh, the fabulous uh, William Detloff. Uh, please go on Amazon now. Check out his book. It's a magnificent book. And I, I wanted to say it's a gripping book. It's not a book you can read 30 pages, put it down and say, I'm going to finish it tomorrow. Once you start, you're not leaving the room. And uh, and I loved it. I, I remember Matthew Saad Muhammad. And uh, if those of you who buy this book, and I'm sure there will be many, will be very happy you did. This is a man that deserves to be remembered for all time. Thank you, Bill. I want you to have a great rest of your weekend. And thank you. Look, you do the same. Thank you. And we will see you next week on Ring Talk. Okay. Thank you.